0: Let's bow together in prayer. Father, as we open Your Word today, we want to ask of You that which we cannot do ourselves. And that is that You would drive into our heart the depths of meaning of the words of Jesus Christ, Your Son. And that as a result, we would be conformed to His likeness. And we would be in all things submissive to Your will. We pray this because there is an inability in our humanity to conform to any of these things. We know that this is a work of the Spirit empowering us as we surrender our wills to You. And so as we open Your Word, grant by Your grace an obedience and a righteousness that supersedes and exceeds the legalism of the Pharisees. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is an inextricable link between some things. If you'll go to your outline, the very first point that I want to share with you is that there is an inextricable bond that exists between my relationship with God and my relationship with fellow human beings. That is something that Jesus is making clear to us in the Sermon on the Mount. All of what we read in verses 21 through 26, uh, excuse me, through 48 is about this, this network of relationships that we have as followers of Jesus Christ. Something that's inextricably linked is something that is sort of mutually dependent on each other. I found out that there is an inextricable link between oxygen that is in the air, and my lungs, and my breathing, and my blood... And my heart and my life, we were climbing the mountains of Ecuador. We had a team that got together and had gone to do work in the jungles of Ecuador. And for a weekend pass, we left the jungle and went up to the high mountains and took a bus. And the bus took us all the way to 15,000 feet, which is very high, almost three miles high, and then several of us made a journey from 15,000 feet up to 16,500. We actually walked up the mountain there. And uh, I found out that there is a direct relationship, an inextricable link and bond between the amount of oxygen that's in the air and whether or not I can continue to have consciousness. Because as we started climbing the mountain at that altitude, the oxygen was so thin that we literally had to pant. <sighs> to get enough oxygen into us to actually stay up and walking in fact at one point in the journey uh, I began to laugh and I don't know if you laugh like I do but I always exhale when I laugh I go <laughs> and the longer I laughed all of a sudden the this this closure happened, and everything that was light began getting darker and darker and darker, going down to a little pinpoint, because as I was laughing and the air was going out, none was coming in, and I was already depleted, and I almost passed out from laughing, and I had to stop laughing and go, <sighs> to get the oxygen going again. There's some link between oxygen and air and lungs and breathing and blood and heart and life. And if any one of those breaks down, then... Things aren't good. If I stop breathing, it doesn't matter how much oxygen's in the air. If my heart stops pumping, doesn't matter how well my lungs are breathing. If I'm breathing air that doesn't have oxygen, all of those things are inextricably linked to life and in our relationship with God. There is an inextricable link between Jesus, our relationship with the Father, our relationship with our brothers and our relationship with the world. And Jesus makes that crystal clear here. Let me give you an illustration. And Emily is new on the computer. Y'all welcome Emily. Give her a big hand. We're glad she's here. And uh, she's helping us out. Robin's up there training her. But she really doesn't need a lot of training. She does this on Wednesday nights for the youth. Emily, let's go to the next slide. And you'll begin filling out in your outline first. Let's start with a triangle and a J in it. Let's hold right there. Jesus comes into our life, when we decide that we're going to follow Jesus, when the work of the Holy Spirit brings the new birth and regeneration, Christ enters our hearts and He first gives us a new relationship with ourselves. We first see ourselves differently. That relationship is what is revealed in the Beatitudes in chapter 5, verses 3-10. through We, as a result of the work of God's Spirit and the entry of Christ into our heart, we are those who see ourselves as spiritually poor, bankrupt. We mourn over that spiritual poverty. We meekly fall under the hand of God to be guided into righteousness. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. We become, as a result... Merciful people. We become, as a result, pure in heart. We become, as a result, peacemakers. And so, He gives us a new understanding of ourselves. And it radically changes everything. Because when I am truly at peace with God, knowing that I have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, and I have, therefore, peace with God, then my relationships with everyone else change. Those relationships radically change because now I no longer need people to justify me. I no longer see people's opinions as a means to my justification. I no longer need people as those who prop up my spirituality or applaud my spirituality in order for me to feel good about myself because now the gospel has given me the right feelings about myself, a sinner saved by the grace of God, fully accepted through Jesus Christ. So I am internally very different and I have a new self, a new life a new spirit, and a new view of God's commands. I now desire to do them. But Christ in this doesn't just give me a new relationship with myself so that I rightly see myself. He gives me an up relationship. One more click. Thank you. An up relationship with God the Father. You see, when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest command? He said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. When Jesus comes into my life by the work of the Spirit of God with this new heart, with this new spirit, with this new life, I am now able to do the great command. I love God first and foremost. Christ makes me a lover of God and a fulfiller of God of the great command. That new relationship means that God is now my Father by adoption. That's implied all through the Scriptures in Matthew chapter 5. It's implied in verse 9, "'Blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called the sons of God.'" It's implied in verse 16, "'Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven.'" We are not naturally the sons and daughters of God. We are supernaturally His sons and daughters. And Jesus gives us an up relationship with God the Father where now He is our Father. We are His children. That's driven home again in verse 48 of chapter 5. Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So now I love Him foremost and supremely because Christ has changed my heart. I now know God's love intimately, relationally, personally. I know Him not as just Creator. I know Him. In the words of Romans 8, the Apostle Paul, I call Him Daddy. He is intimately close to me. But then something else occurs. I get a new relationship with those who are inside the family of God. I now have siblings. Now, here's the interesting thing. When I was born again, I was born into a family that already had people in it. When Laurel was born, she was the second born in our family. When Laurel was born, she was born the daughter of Bart, but she was also born the sister of Lainey. Laurel did not get to choose who her sister was, nor did Lainey. Look around. Look around. Go ahead. Look around. You did not get to choose who your brothers and sisters are in the family of God. God birthed you, brought you into His family, and He gave you a sibling relationship with all of the believers that He has brought to Himself. That sibling relationship is something you were born into. And so now you're commanded the second command. What is it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. You have two kinds of neighbors. One, the letter I stands for those who are in the family of God. That's your first neighbor. It's the one who is already in the family of God. You were born into that family and they are your brothers and sisters and they're going to be referred to a lot in Matthew chapters 5, 6 and 7. A lot of emphasis on how we're to treat each other as God's family. But it doesn't stop there. There's a next relationship. And that relationship is O for out. Those who are outside of the family of God. We have a new relationship. This is the second kind of neighbor. If I'm to love my neighbor as myself, I know that I love my neighbor who is in the family of God, but I'm also called to love my neighbor who is outside the family of God, even if he is my enemy. The Bible says to Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Do good to them who spitefully use you. And so you shall be sons of your Father. And so the third relationship that God gives me is the relationship with the people who are outside of God's family. Those far from God. We might call them lost. We might call them separated. We might call them alien or strangers to God. But they are objects of His love. And because His love is in our heart and we love Him, we love the things He loves, so we love the brethren and we love those who are in the world. This is a set of inextricable relationships. We have no choice about these. We are commanded and empowered that these relationships must all be alive and well in our lives. And in the same way that breathing and oxygen and air and blood and heart and life are all connected and if any of them fail, things go seriously wrong. If there's any breakdown in any of these relationships, then things go seriously wrong. These things are so inextricably connected that in 1 John, listen to the words of John repeating Jesus' teaching, he says this, in chapter 4, if a man says he loves God and he hates his brother, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. If a man says that he loves God and hates his brother, how can the love of God abide in him? There is an inextricable link between our relationship with God, our relationship with each other in the family of God, and our relationship with those outside of the family of God. And all three of those are characterized by a simple word. Love. And that word is going to flow through all of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to see it explicitly Stated many times in verses 21 through 48. And so we must understand this relationship. Now, implied in this, look in the last part of the section that Steve read. Come down to the last two things. He goes through in the beginning and says, he talks about, anger and wrath, and and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But explicit in this are those three relationships. Look in verse 23. If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar. Now when you're presenting your offering at the altar, what are you doing? Who are you having a relationship with? Who? God. He said, okay, if you're there and And you have to understand this illustration. He was talking to Galileans who would travel a couple of days to Jerusalem and carry their animal and they would get there and they would get ready for sacrifice. And during the pre-sacrifice time of contemplation, God would raise their awareness that something was wrong between them and a brother. And he said, you leave your animal there and you make the two-day journey back home and you go and be reconciled before you offer this because you can't worship me and be at odds with them. And so there's an inextricable link between our relationship with God and our brother. So much so that God says, don't offer up that sacrifice until you... Tend to those things. Now, he goes further and says, Let's expand it. In verse 25, he says, Make friends quickly with your opponent at law. The word opponent here is a strong word, it's a word that means an adversary or even an enemy. Did you know that in 1 Peter chapter 5, this word is used to describe Satan? It's such an enemy that this person is. That they are at odds with you and accusing you. And so, in a sense, when we look at this, we have a sacrifice. I want to go and sacrifice to God. God says, no, go be reconciled to your brother. And by the way, if you're even out with somebody in the world, you need to tend to that too before you worship. And so here, implicit in the text, is a relationship with God, sacrifice, a relationship with my brother, specifically stated, brother in verse 23, and then even an enemy in verse 25, which would be somebody likely outside of the faith. And so here is an inextricable bond between my relationship with God, my relationship with my brother, and my relationship with the people outside of the family of God. So let's think about how Jesus presents verses 21 through 48. He presents verses 21 through 48 assuming that we do and will have trouble with these things. I love this. He doesn't come in and say, hey, you, if you follow Christ, everything's going to be perfect and fine and you can just kind of uh, get ready for your heart to sit on the cloud in heaven. And just he, he states all the way through these passages that you know what, there's going to be trouble between you and your brother. There's going to be trouble between you and an enemy, you and the world. There's going to be trouble in these relationships and therefore don't assume that everything's going to be okay. You're going to be always working on these things. Now I think there's... Three ways to view these, kind of like a house. Let's imagine three different houses and three different groups of people. Let's imagine one house where the mom does not care, the dad does not care if anything is clean at all and they have three children. What would that be like? If you have three children and a mom and a dad who don't care if anything's clean at all, what's that house going to look like? It's going to be a wreck. We were doing evangelism in downtown New Orleans. Johnny Hunt, the pastor of First Baptist Church Woodstock, was down to preach a revival at the church that I was serving at. And so we went down to visit some of the folks we'd made contact with. One of those folks was a crack dealer. And so we went to this crack dealer's house. I took Johnny and Janet, and we went into this house. And literally, when we stepped into the house, this is the truth, garbage was stacked in the middle of the living room with flies on it. It was the most grotesque thing There were children running around it. We sat down to share the gospel with this couple, and the truth is they did not care what was going on in that house. It was a nasty wreck. Their lives were wrecked by crack cocaine. The Lord gloriously saved them and delivered them from that. Praise God for that. But it was just incredible how foul that was. That was kind of like the lives of the sinners and the tax collectors in terms of obeying God. They didn't care. They just didn't care. The prostitutes, the sinners, the tax collectors that Jesus talked about, they were so out with God, it was like, we're not even going to bother to clean the house. And then at the other end of the spectrum was the Pharisees. Now, here's what the Pharisees were like in housekeeping. They were like, I want everything to be perfect because I need to hide the fact that all the relationships in the house are terrible. Have you ever been in a house like that? Where everything is in order except the family. Everything, there's, there's vases here and there's glorious things and there's stuff on display. But underneath all of that, there's this, this strife and hatred and children don't play there. They exist. And parents don't get along there. They just exist. And it's like a show place, but there's no relationships. So there's never a mess that's obvious. It's all inside. That was what the Pharisees were like. On the outside, they were like a cleaned up house with terrible relationships. The third kind of house is like the disciples. The disciples were folks who were going to have houses that you lived in that you had to clean up every day. They had children in them, and they cared what it looked like, but the children were allowed to play and to grow and to be what they were. So that means they drug the Legos out. It means they drug all the baby dolls out. It means the floor just got all tore up with it day after day. And night after night, Mom and Dad went together, mostly Mom, and put all these things away and, and started over the next day. These things were, were a living house that was constantly being cleaned up. The disciples are a house that we really live in just like we really are and we're having to clean up every day because life's hard and relationships are hard and we're always having to clean up after ourselves because we do things terribly sometimes. It's not a show place where everything has the appearance of perfection and the relationships are rotten. It's not a place where nobody cares and there's foul garbage. It's a place where daily we have to work to maintain life. This is what Jesus is assuming in verses 21 through 48, life is hard. And if you live it as a believer, you will have to clean it up every day. And it will be work. So that leads us to the second point. There is an underlying sinful attitude to every sinful action. This is what Jesus is after in verses 21 through 48. That's why He says, you have heard, verse 21, that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. Whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry, there's that word, angry. Now here's the breakdown in three areas. Look at it. First, it's just anger. Now this word is really important. It's the word wrath. It's never used positively except of God, of Jesus and of a ruler like a king and a master over a slave. Every other use of the word wrath is negative. And it's said in Colossians and Ephesians that wrath is something to be put away. And so what is wrath? What is the kind of anger he's talking about here? First, it's something that's constantly building. Wrath is that which is growing. It's not been dealt with. It's not been forgiven. It's not been redeemed. It's just there and it just grows. Second, it's looking for an outlet. The word that is used here was like water building up behind a dam and finally breaking through the dam. Third, it has in its heart vengeance and payment and repayment and exacting a fee for what has happened. And fourth, it assumes the role of authority or final judgment. So wrath is something that's building, it's looking for an outlet, it's seeking vengeance, and it assumes the role of authority or and judgment. And so here you have first, verse 22. He's wrathful with his brother. And Jesus equates that, listen carefully, with murder. You said, oh, Pastor Bart, that ain't cool. I don't even think you're right. Well, I'm okay with that. Because I had to work through this. But here, let me help you. Uh, Pull the next slide up. Uh, What kind of tree is that? It's an oak tree. Y'all knew that. All right. Now, I want you to know that everything needed for this tree, next slide, is in this. Wrath is the acorn of the murderous oak tree. It's very small. It seems to be well-contained. It seems to be innocent. When Jesus said that wrath is going to lead you to judgment, He's going to show how wrath begins to work itself out. The second thing He says, look, in verse 22, angry with your brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, what does that mean? It's a dismissive valuation. It's the rolling of the eyes at someone externally or internally saying, you're just an idiot, man. You say, well, we do that all the time. That's why Jesus is addressing it. Because that's not right. He's saying in, in, that, in that wrath that's seething in you, that's never been released, that thing that's looking for vengeance, that thing that assumes final judgment, where you begin to look at people and roll your eyes at them and dismiss them and not care? You've murdered them in your heart. He says that's that's not right. But it goes to another level. He says, and whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. What is your fool? It's a categorical judgment of worth on a person. It's a categorical final judgment You don't matter to me. You don't matter at all. I'm done with you. And we render a verdict that says, you're just a moron. And we judge them. And we render value to them. And what Jesus says is that that wrath, that word of empty head, that dismissive eye-rolling, that final judgment... Is an acorn of sin that has within it the same thing as a towering oak of murder. What's the difference? That acorn is just looking for the right soil to sprout. And the soil of the heart that is unredeemed will sprout that acorn. Some of you, some of me, we look around and we see a murderer and we judge so quickly, but we're not aware of the conditions in their life that made that seed that he had and that I have sprout and turn into action. And Jesus looks at us and He says, that acorn, that seed, is murder. And you better deal with it. And so He lays out for us this acorn and this oak, this wrath, this vengeance. And He takes us to task for number three. Jesus gives us a clear call To the reconciliation of every human relationship. Listen carefully. Jesus covers the gamut of human relationships in verses 21 through 48, passing through brothers and enemies. Passing through sexuality. Passing through oaths. Passing through marriage. He passes through all of these things. He even passes through those who do physical, embarrassing harm to you. He passes through those. And in every one, He demands one thing of a righteous heart. He demands reconciliation. So much so that if you're offering your offering, leave it and go and be reconciled. He mentions it in worship in verse 23. If therefore you are presenting your offering on the altar, and there remember your brother has something against you, Luke tells us a similar passage where he says if you're standing praying and you have something against somebody, forgive or you will not be heard. He says, if you're Remember that your brother has something against you. I want to kind of make a commentary here. I think this is why the North Americans love busy, loud, packed worship. Do you know why? Because it never gives us a chance to hear a still, small voice. We get so fired up. We sing. We move through our services really fast. And very little time to stop and listen to the Spirit of God start to call out things to us about relationships that are broken. Strings of them behind us. Unreconciled. Some in the church, some in the world. And so, here He demands the reconciliation of every human relationship. Not some, not most. But even with your adversary and your enemy. Well, for this to occur, number four, this reconciliation must take place or must occur in three places. And here's just some simple, pragmatic things of how to do this. You say, Pastor Bart, I'm with you. Um, I, I want to do this. How, how do I do this? Here's some simple things. First, it must occur first in our hearts, as both repentance and forgiveness. Why? By both? I have to repent of assuming God's vengeance and harboring what only belongs to Him. I have to repent of my anger. I cannot justify it. I cannot excuse it. I must repent of it. That is referred, the anger that is referred to here is the building, wrathful, abiding anger that belongs only to God and to judges who render final verdicts. So it must occur first in our hearts. First as repentance and then as genuine forgiveness of everyone for everything. There is first in this a prerequisite. That's the next thing in your outline. There's a prerequisite. What is the prerequisite for me being repentant about anger and for me being forgiving those I'm angry at? It is that I am a sinner saved by grace and if God held any sin against me of which I have committed innumerable, then I would be lost forever. If God held any sin against me, I would be lost forever. I am a sinner saved by grace. This is the prerequisite for this kind of living. I have to have my own heart right with repentance and forgiveness to pull that off. What do I have to do? I have a prerequisite. I'm a sinner saved by grace. And if God held any sin against me, I would be eternally lost. And so I have repented of my sins and I have placed my faith in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation and my justification. Little Roman numeral number two, there is a definition of forgiveness. I need to know what forgiveness is. Now, there there are big lengthy ones and little tiny ones. I think this one just kind of falls in the middle. Bring that up. I forego. Write this down. I forego and give up the right to see or experience any repayment, and I refuse to work towards or delight in his or her harm. I I thank Tim Keller in his wonderful work on forgiveness for most of this definition. I've edited it some. I forgo and give up the right to see or experience any repayment, and I refuse to work towards or delight in his or her harm. That's forgiveness. You see, I've been wronged if I need to forgive. Someone's hurt me. And I feel the need to exact out of them some payment. I need to get them back. I need to venge or see them venged. And so I either delight in their failure or their hurt or their pain, or I inflict it. And here, I forgo it. I let it go. The third point that I want to make under that is forgiveness is granted before it is felt say, I don't feel like forgiving. I understand that. But you're commanded to. You're commanded to so much that you need to go and reconcile before you worship. You need to go and reconcile before all of these things come together and cataclysmic things happen and God lets judgment fall upon your life as these seeds sprout and bring more harm. And so it's granted before it is felt. There are four parts to it. Number one, I will not punish them to their face. If I forgive them, then I'm not going to give them all kinds of grief when they're with me. I'm not going to exact a pound of flesh for what they've done to me. I'm not going to tear at them, rip at them. I'm not going to say a word to them. I'm going to release them. And any word I give them will be such as is need for the grace of the time, edifying, building up, and encouraging them in Christ Jesus. Number two, I will not punish them to others. It's never put that way. It's always, well, I really don't want to tell you this, but... And then we begin to tear somebody down that we're angry with. How often we are guilty of that and how often we are way outside of God's will. I will not punish them to others. Third, I will not punish them in my heart. I'm not going to keep cycling over and over and over again the things they have done to hurt me. I call that letting people rent space in your head. You don't need to let people rent space in your head with their hurts. You need to evict the hurts and love the people and let them live in peace with you. So I will not punish them by reviewing in my heart the things they have done to me. Uh, And those create ruts like four-wheelers create. They create ruts and you'll get stuck in them. And at first it's fun, but later when you can't get out of them, it ain't fun no more. It's a rut and you're stuck. And fourth, I will pray for them every time they come to mind. This is very important. This means I'm going to seek their good from God. I'm going to seek for God to give them good. I'm going to seek for God to heal what is broken in me and heal what is broken in them. And so the very first place... That forgiveness occurs and the restoration and reconciliation, the place that starts is it starts inside me. These are the things that I do inside and I grant these things long before I feel the relief of them. Let her be. Then it occurs in our individual relationships. So, first realm that it occurs in is my heart. When it's occurring in my heart now, I move it into the relationship with the person. And now I begin to seek to restore and to reconcile that relationship because I have repented of whatever I'm guilty of and I've forgiven whatever they're guilty of. now we try to assume some form of relationship that is pleasing in God's sight. But let her see is very important with this and it is it then occurs in corporate relationships because any time there's a falling out there is a drawing up of sides I've watched that in relationships that I've had with friends that I've fallen out with and I've watched sides get drawn up and what happens is is then the sin of my heart this seed this acorn sprouts and it goes into the heart of others and now it's moving through corporately in a family or in a church or in a city or a town or even in a nation and it begins to break down corporate relationships and it takes what is one and makes it two or three or four and breaks it into pieces. And so then it occurs in corporate relationships and those are restored. Finally, number five, how serious is this? Well, Jesus plays the hell card here. And Jesus never pulls out the hell card when it's not needed. He drops the hell card right into the lap of His disciples and the Pharisees and the scribes. Because what He's going to say is the murderous heart is the unredeemed heart. It is the heart that favors the acorn becoming an oak. And that heart is unredeemed. And that heart is on its way to hell. Jesus is serious here. Listen to His words. He says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. That means you ought to be brought in for a murder hearing. Second, Whoever says, rock, I shall be guilty before the Sanhedrin, the big court, the Supreme Court. And whoever shall judge and say, you fool, he's guilty enough to go to hell. When Jesus raises the aspect, concept, reality of hell, don't ignore it. It's there for a purpose. Why? Why? He's warning us sternly about our hearts. We might be those people who are like the Pharisees and have all of the trappings of religion, but inside our hearts be murderous. A few years ago, we were in the village of Naranjos among the Sachila we were becoming very close with the family, getting more and more intimate in our friendship and relationships where stories were told and um, secrets shared and life began to kind of intermingle. And one of the Satchula men, he's a young man, he began to tell us a story. He, he pulled his shirt up, um, and, which he doesn't wear a shirt very often anyway, so it wasn't a big deal, but he pulled his shirt up and he has this really big scar in his gut, really big scar. And I was working through three different languages at this point, so the accuracy of what I'm telling you is always a little bit in question when I'm going through all that. But in, in Ecuador, they had this really great treat. It's a it's a guava tree. It, it's, it's some people say guava and some say guava. I don't know which it is. I don't even know what the satula call. But they have these giant seed pods on them. I mean, giant. Some of them are this long. And inside that seed pod uh, is this white. Cottony, foamy stuff that tastes like the sweetest, tastiest candy that you can imagine, Are David and Lydia here, because they eat this stuff like crazy, yeah, they're not here, I think they're traveling today. they love this stuff, and so you pull this this um this waba bean it looks like a bean, it looks like a giant bean, you pull it in, you split it open, and there's this white cottony stuff, and you you put it in your mouth, but down inside it are these great big seeds. And so you have to put it in your mouth and suck all the stuff off the seed and then spit the seed out. Well, Roberto, he had his shirt up and had this big scar, and he said, well, when I was a kid, I was eating the lava. And you know how good that stuff is. Man, I was just packing it in my mouth, and I was just swallowing the seeds. My parents didn't know, and my siblings didn't know. I was just swallowing the seeds. And he said, and you know what happened? They got stuck inside me. And do you know how I know that they got stuck inside me? He said, well, I started hurting really, really, really bad inside. And I was complaining to my parents and screaming and yelling. And finally, you know, they went through all the satula procedures that you do with the shaman and all these things, and that didn't work. So they took me to the hospital. And the uh, folks at the hospital started feeling around and knew something was wrong, and I was screaming, and I, I I was literally dying. And he said, and so so they cut me open, and they found all these seeds. And the reason they found them is, one of them had sprouted, and it had started growing. And it let me know that it was stuck in there. And I've got a feeling that there are at least someone like me here, who's got a few acorns. Hidden in the heart. And they're sprouting. And they're hurting really bad. And the divine surgeon is wanting to take the knife of the Holy Spirit and lay us open today and pull that stuff out. Because He wants to save our lives. Would you bow with me? I'm inviting you this morning to two things. The first is to the kind of relationship I described at the beginning where by the work of the Gospel, the work of the Holy Spirit, the knowledge that Jesus lived sinlessly, God's Son, God in human flesh, died as our substitute and was raised from the dead, that that good news by God's Spirit does a work in us to make us aware, make us see our spiritual poverty, mourn over our sin, meekly bow ourselves to God, hunger and thirst for a righteousness that doesn't come from us but from Jesus, Be changed and deal mercifully with our brothers and sisters. Become pure in heart so that my heart is not a dwelling place for acorns of murder. And become a peacemaker where I restore relationships. That's what I'm inviting you to first. I'm inviting you to Jesus. When he comes in, he so changes you that you see yourself differently. You have peace with God, and you don't need other people for your justification. God brings them to you for your sanctification, and that's why you need them. God uses them to reveal to you the acorns of your heart. Makes them pop up, and you see them, and they hurt like sprouting guava beads beans down in your gut. So Jesus wants to save you and give you a new relationship with God, a new relationship with siblings in the family, and a new relationship with the world where you love the lost people to Jesus. That's His work. That's my first invitation. My second is to invite you to take the acorns of your heart and come down to this altar and place them before God. And to forgive even when you don't feel it. To repent even though it's difficult. And that you would come today and you would say, God, I love you. My brother and sister in Christ, I love you. My friend outside of Christ, I love you. And I want all my relationships to be good. Would you do that today? Don't let that bean sprout in your gut and imperil your soul. Would you stand as God calls you? Would you come?